thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Julia Ravy. And this week, scientists discover the world's biggest bacterium. Do brain training apps really work? And evidence that we pick our friends based on how they smell. Well, that's research not to be sniffed at, isn't it? Also this week, with polio in London, monkeypox across 40 countries and COVID still on the rampage, emerging infections is going under our microscope. Where are these outbreaks coming from and why? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. What's about two centimetres long looks like a piece of spaghetti and clings to a leaf. Now that sounds like a joke, but it's not. It's actually the description of the world's largest bacterium. And yes, you did hear that correctly. These are bacteria that are bigger than some insects. Jean-Marie Volland at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory has been studying them. He got these ones through the post from Guadeloupe in tubes. They were clinging to bits of mangrove leaf. When I open them, they are leaf debris, pieces of dead leaves. Then on the leaves, you can see white spaghetti-like filaments that are about one centimeter to two centimeter in length, swaying left and right in the water attached to the leaf. To give you an idea of the size, they are more or less the same size as an eyelash, most likely the biggest bacteria ever. We call bacteria microbes because you need a microscope to see them. I mean, they are normally fractions of a millimetre across. This isn't a microbe, it's a macrobe, I suppose you could say, isn't it? Two centimetres. Yeah, you could absolutely say that. They are, they are not uh, fitting the definition of microbes very well, that is for sure. They are about 5,000 times bigger than most bacteria. It is the same thing as if you would discover tomorrow that some humans are five kilometers tall, like as tall as the Mount Everest, for instance. Goodness. So this is how gigantic they are. And what do these bacteria do? They live uh, happily in the mangrove waters. They feed on sulfur. They grow on the surface of the sediments at the bottom of the mangrove water. How did they get that big and why? That, that is a very good question that we have not an answered yet. Two hypotheses. The, the first one is that if you're a small bacterium and you are being consumed by other microbes that are feeding on, on bacteria, if you grow to hundreds or even thousands of times bigger than your predator, then you don't have to worry about being uh, eaten by it, right? And then the second idea is that they live in an environment that is unstable and they need to position themselves in a very specific place where they can extract the chemical energy they need for growing. And if they are bigger, they can probably better uh, access this energy. So there, is, uh, there are some hypotheses in, in that sense as well. Are they definitely just one entity? So if you look at them, it's clearly just one bacterial cell. It's not a big assemblage of them that have all joined together and made a sort of macro cell. That is a very good question. And the first part of the answer is yes, it is a single bacterial cell. We have done a lot of microscopic investigation to confirm that because there are some other large microbes that can make centimeter long filaments, but they are composed of many cells. In our case, we prepared these giant cells in a way that we could observe them in their entirety. So we looked at entire cells with microscopes in three dimension. We never detected any separation that would make the filament a multicellular filament. So we know it is a single cell. 
Have you read its genetic code? Because that can often give us clues about how something works and who its relatives are. We have sequenced the genome, yes, and that allowed us to place them on the tree of life. They belong to a group of bacteria called gamma proteobacteria. They are sitting on the tree of life in a branch that is completely away from the origin of eukaryotes, for instance. So we know that they are not uh, at the origin of the complex cells that make our uh, body or, you know, other animals. And we have also some clues on the molecular basis for their extreme size. By reading the genome, we know that it has lost some of the genes that are necessary for bacteria to divide in the classical way. And we know that it has some of the genes that are necessary to increase the size, to elongate the cell, have been duplicated. So they are missing some division genes. And on the other hand, they have multiple copies of elongation genes. So that kind of connects very well with the unusual morphology that we observe. And do you know how they have baby bacteria? How do they reproduce? (laughs) We do know, yes, we, uh, that is also a, a quite unusual way of making baby bacteria. Like you said, that they, they grow in, into these large filaments. And at the tip of the filament, the cell will produce a bud. So they will constrict really just the tip of the filament. Uh, and this constriction will close off completely. And a small piece is going to detach, find a good spot and grow into a new giant filament. Does anything eat them? Have they got enemies? We don't know that. Uh, I was discussing that with our collaborator in, in, in Guadeloupe uh, just before this interview. And what they said is that they have looked at other giant sulfur microbes and they, they have analyzed their, uh, we, we could call it their chemical signature. And they try to see if they find this same chemical signature in some of the predators and they could not find it. So they don't have any evidence that, you know, uh, fish or or small animals in the mangrove are feeding on those giant bacteria. We know that they are not consumed by the the classic predators of bacteria because they are just too big to be eaten by other microbes that would normally feed on bacteria. So we don't know who is eating the giant bacteria. It's still a mystery. Jean-Marie Volant studying the world's biggest bacteria, published this week in the journal Science. It's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, when you do some interviews and you just think, wow, and that was one of them. It really blew my mind. Speaking of which, if you blow your mind, maybe I need a bit of brain training. Because if you go into the App Store and you type in brain training, you're confronted with thousands of games that you can download to ostensibly boost your brain power. And while Playing for fun is all well and good. If you do genuinely devote hours to a game under the what could be misapprehension that you're boosting your brain power by doing so, you might be being misled. Anya Pahor from the University of California, Riverside, set out to test who is really benefiting from brain training. And I gave the game designed for their experiments a go. So what I have to do is I'm a little astronaut that's running through the world and I've got to collect gems. And... I can only collect a gem if the gem that I've seen before it is identical to it, which requires me to keep in my mind what that first gem was. Oh, so now I've got to remember three gems in a row, which is a blue circle, a pink diamond and a green triangle. So the next gem I come across, if it's not a blue circle, because that's three gems back, I'm not allowed to take it. So the next gem I need to pick up, if it's a blue one, I can I can pick it up. Yep, blue. Next one needs to be a pink gem. Blue, pink, green, pink, yep. And if this is green, ah, it's yellow, not going to go for it. Oh, I completed the level. So I'm playing this memory recall game and this is being used in a study to test if brain training games are actually impacting our transferable skills outside the game because it's important to differentiate if I'm just going to get really good at this one game or is it that my memory is actually improving because at the minute evidence for brain training games being able to increase cognitive skills is still lacking. Almost everyone has an app that is mentally challenging some of them are for fun but the claims that some of these apps have made are that you will not only improve on the game or in the app itself, 
but it might transfer to other areas of your life. So you might be able to focus better at work. This is what scientists call far transfer. This, however, is somewhat questionable and inconsistent findings have been reported in the literature. We need to be careful when evaluating these types of apps to see what they are promising. How have you tried to better understand if these games train our brains? We developed an app in our lab and we've been testing for years and we've been running participants in our lab and trying to figure out which features of our um, working memory training app work and which don't. And we uh, conducted three experiments with almost 500 people and basically repeatedly showed that if someone improves on the main training task, but is not able to perform equally well on the same type of task, but with these different memory objects, then they are unlikely to show improvements in a different context or in a different task. This finding is fairly straightforward, but it can help resolve some of the controversies in the field, which has shown these inconsistent findings regarding the effectiveness of brain training. In our labs, instead of asking the question, does brain training work, and just averaging over large groups of people, we are trying to figure out how brain training works and for whom. And is the opposite of that true as well? So say if someone was good at a word game and then they were also, they had this near transfer of being good at another word game, they'd have better far transfer as well. Yeah, this is what our findings would support. So if they can apply what they've learned to a similar task, then they're more likely to show far transfer as well. And do we know who these people are who have these better transferable skills? Do they have anything in common? So we haven't looked at that data yet, but we are planning to examine that in the future. So how are you planning to expand your research into brain training games using bigger populations? We have recently uh, actually launched a large-scale citizen science study that aims to recruit 30,000 individuals. We are including many different training conditions in games, and we will be trying to figure out which types of games work best for which groups of people. And we can only do this when we have a very large and a diverse sample of participants, of hopefully thousands of participants. And so is the aim in the future to have brain training games that work more on a personalized level so you can look at an individual and think about what games would work best for them? Exactly. Yeah, we think that that is the future for brain training because there is just no one type of game that will work for everyone. We know that there are substantial individual differences in responsiveness to training and we really need to take that into account. Anya Pahor discussing their findings published in Nature Human Behaviour. From baffling British weather, the sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out, games making their way to the clinic, and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists in Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com/short, or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come here on The Naked Scientists, how researchers have discovered that we're more likely to click with people who smell the same as us. And where do new diseases come from? We're looking at the science of emerging infections like monkeypox. And on the subject of infections this week, there were alarming reports of polio virus, which can cause paralysis circulating in London. The detection was made by sampling sewage from Becton. This is worrying because for 20 years, the UK has enjoyed polio elimination status, meaning the disease does not circulate here. But coverage of this story has been a bit mixed. And what's actually been detected is the genetic signature of polio vaccine rather than the wild type disease itself. Nevertheless, this is very concerning because we don't use live polio vaccines here in the UK anymore. So the fact this has been detected means it must have come in from abroad. Presumably someone had the vaccine recently and then came here. And the sustained presence of the agent over many months, which is how long they've been detecting it for, means that it somehow found a toehold in the community 
and that argues that not enough people have been vaccinated, at least in that bit of London, to stop polio itself spreading. And if the spreading weakened vaccine strain were to mutate into a much nastier form, and that can happen, then we could have a problem. Here's virologist Wendy Barclay. We've had this announcement from the UK Health Security Agency that some polio virus has been picked up in sewage samples. So we do this routine surveillance where we look to see what viruses are out there in the water and it can indicate what viruses might be circulating in a community in a certain place. Whereas we normally pick up very few of these polioviruses, there have now been some reports all the way through from February till May, there is some vaccine-derived poliovirus in the sewage samples that have been collected in North and East London. This has caused some alarm because there's more of it than usual and over a longer period than usual, which suggests that there could well be some level of circulation in the community there. If it's a vaccine, why are we bothered? The fact that it's a vaccine is interesting in several ways. First of all, we don't use the live oral vaccine against poliovirus at all in the UK. We use what's called the inactivated poliovirus vaccine. So that tells us that this virus which is circulating has been introduced from somewhere outside of the UK. The fact that it's circulating, again, is not unheard of. But the fact that it's circulating suggests that actually there are a group of people in whom it's circulating who are not immune to polio. And that's a bad way to be. We don't want there to be groups of people in the UK who aren't immune to to polio. So we've got really two headaches here in the sense that we've got admittedly vaccine derived poliovirus circulating so it's not just a one-off pickup from one person shedding it the fact that it's been there for months shows that it, it must be circulating among a group of people and this shows that there's enough people who are not immune to polio in the immediate area this is happening that it is clearly transmitting among those people yes that's right and then the third thing to worry about is that although the live attenuated poliovirus vaccine that we used orally in the UK in the past and is still used in a few places in the world is a good vaccine. It is attenuated. As with all viruses, it can mutate. And if it reverts to being fully virulent, what that means is that it's a vaccine-derived virus, but it's no longer necessarily completely attenuated and could cause serious illness. So what will the public health practitioners who have sounded the alarm now be doing? So what public health agencies will be encouraging people to do is to come forward and get a polio vaccine. They will be offered the inactivated poliovirus vaccine, which is widely available in the UK, and that will protect them against any serious consequence of picking up this particular vaccine-derived poliovirus. We'll keep you posted on what happens with that emerging story. That was Wendy Barclay. She is at Imperial College London. Now, being able to hear properly is critical to the development of language and education. But in resource-poor settings like countries in the third world, it can be very hard to achieve an accurate diagnosis of an underlying ear disorder that might be hampering hearing and therefore ultimately damaging a person's potential. That's because the equipment that you need to do this is usually preclusively expensive. But now, scientists at the University of Washington have come up with a way to use a smartphone to study the performance of the middle ear. This is called tympanometry, and I heard from Justin Chan how it works. Ear infections affect the mobility of the eardrum because fluid that's infected or not infected, it can accumulate behind the eardrum and make it stiff. And tympanometry is really one of the key tests that are used to measure middle ear function, but these devices really are quite expensive. They're two to 5,000 US dollars. And this makes them inaccessible, especially in low to middle income countries. These hospitals, they have to rely on a very small number of tympanometry devices. So patients who come from a long drive away, like nine hours away, just for say hearing screenings or other types of checkups like this. And how does a tympanometer work? I can present that in the context of what we have here. So what we built was a low-cost tympanometry device. This is smartphone-based with parts that are only about 20 or 30 US dollars. 
and the parts can just be purchased anywhere. So the hardware and the software for this are goes to open source for anyone to replicate. What I'm showing here is the attachment is a syringe. So this is a medical syringe. And the idea here is that we have a motor that moves the plunger very small amounts at a sub-millimeter precision. And this connects through a series of tubes that ends up into the ear. So the plunger actually ends up moving the eardrum very small and precise amounts. And at the same time, we're sending a sound via the same tubing into the eardrum. And we're measuring the sound that comes back. What happens is that the recording of the sound changes as you flex the eardrum. And this recording is called a tympanogram that's used for making clinical decisions, especially related to diagnosing middle ear disorders. And so that device, you've just shown me it there. It's sort of like a box that sits on the back of your smartphone and it's all very compact and portable. So there's a big long tube with a, almost like an earbud on the end that goes into the eardrum. And that's taking a measurement of how stiff or how flexible the eardrum is. So then do you get a readout of that on your smartphone? Exactly. You get a real-time reading on the smartphone like this. This graph here just looks like a little mountain. So the height of the mountain, the width of the mountain are key metrics that are used to determine how flexible the eardrum is. So for example, an uh, eardrum that's too flexible will have a much higher peak. One that's not flexible enough may be a lower peak. And if you have an ear infection where your eardrum is stiff, it will actually just show up as flat. And the intuition behind that is that the eardrum actually will not move at all, even if you're adding or decreasing pressure. And have you tested this out and compared it to the original machine that will be used in this situation to see how they compare? Yeah, so we conducted clinical testing on 50 pediatric ears. And this was done in parallel with a clinic-grade tympanometry device. And we showed in our study that there was good agreement between both devices of about 86%. So this is promising. And we think that for future studies, testing this out in the field will be useful to evaluate the durability of the device. And once you get the readout from the device, so say you've built it and you've done a readout and it's saying that your eardrum doesn't respond as it should be doing, so potentially you have an infection, then what do people do with that information? This information is typically used by a clinician in combination with other tests to guide middle ear disorder diagnosis. So this is typically just one part of a battery of tests to diagnose the function of the middle ear. This can diagnose quite a large range of disorders. So the exact follow-up procedure will vary from patient to patient. Justin Chan talking about his smartphone tympanometer that he's published in Nature Communications Medicine. Sounds good to me. Now hear this. We sometimes encounter people, even perfect strangers, who begin to interest us at first sight, somehow suddenly, all at once, before a word has been spoken. No, those are not my words, but the words of Fyodor Dostoevsky in his novel Crime and Punishment. Now, it might have been written in 1866, but it is still absolutely true today. There are people with whom we feel an instant bond when we meet them. But rather than it being down just as Dostoevsky suggested to what they look like, what they in fact smell like might be a hidden part of the formula. A new study has shown that people with the same body odour profiles are much more likely to click instantly and become friends. It was an idea hatched by Inbal Ravari at the Wiseman Institute in Israel. She works with Noam Sobel, who joined Chris to talk about the work from a slightly unusual venue because Israel's got strikes going on just like we have. I'm actually hiding behind some building in a pool with my children running around here somewhere because uh, there's a teacher's strike in Israel today. So uh, life has been turned upside down a bit. So we've got trains on strike, you've got teachers on strike, but science prevails. We're going to try and converse all the same and you're hiding behind this cafe. I hope they don't mind. <laughs> Tell us about this study. The people that you're there at the pool with, do they smell like you? I think the chlorine is probably knocking everybody's smell out here. But this study is about the fact that people are smelling each other and they're probably making decisions based on that. And so this particular study is decisions of the type of who you would like to befriend or become friends with. 
basically it built on two observations. So one is we know for a long time that people are constantly sniffing and smelling themselves. If you just observe people, whether I do that now at the pool or you at, at your radio station or wherever, people are constantly smelling themselves. Of course, if you want to take this to the extreme, so in our lab, we call this the uh, Lev effect, named after German football coach Joachim Lau or Lev, depends how you want to pronounce it. And to those of you who have a spare minute, and this is not for the faint of heart, you can go into YouTube and, and perform the search Joachim Lau or Lev sniff, and you will be amazed. But that aside, we all do this. So, so people are constantly sniffing themselves. We also sniff strangers, but we tend to do this in a covert manner. For example, a study from our group demonstrated that often after we shake hands with individuals, the hand that shook then comes to our nose. And the question is, what does this serve? Why do we do this? And what Inbal, the lead author, hypothesized is that we're comparing at some subconscious level. We're comparing our own odor to other people's odor. And if the odors are the same, then that promotes uh, social interaction. That's good for connecting. So we become friends with people who look like us, with people who have similar values to ours, even with people who have similar patterns of brain activity to ours. So similarity promotes friendship. Maybe similarity promotes friendship in body order as well. So how did you test that then? Inbal concentrated on a very particular type of social setting, which he refers to is click friends. Now, this is something we're all really familiar with from, from our, our life. If I tell you, you know, about, do you have any person you ever met? And, you know, the minute you met, you clicked. Everybody's familiar with this phenomenon. But, but how did that happen? What was it there that made you click? And Himbal hypothesized that this would be chemistry. So she recruited from around Israel pairs of click friends. And once she identified a cohort of both male and female click friends, she then sampled their body odors. But how do, you, and, how do you actually smell that and work out what the smells are that are on the odor profile? Right. Then Inbal carried out two types of experiments. In one, she used a device we call an electronic nose. Now, this is a bit deceiving because it's not really a nose, but, but it's a set of chemical sensors that are supposed to act like a nose. And so she smelled these pairs of body odors with an electronic nose, and then she smelled also just random pairs of people. And she asked whether the inelectronic nose finds the body order of click friends to be more similar to each other than just random people. And the answer was a resounding yes. Click friends smell more similar than just random pairs of individuals. What about if you go the next step and say, I'm now going to ask a human to do it? And so Inbal did exactly that. And she had cohorts of smellers smell these body odors, and rate their similarity. And once again, consistent with the Eno's results, she found that smellers find that click friends, these pairs of people who are friends, smell more similar to each other than just random pairs of people. Have you gone a step further, which is to make someone smell different uh, so that how, have I could you turn been someone... Spying? Well, maybe. <laughs> have you been spying been on our around, lab? been hanging around your swimming pool. Because um, <laughs> yeah. uh, if you could okay, take so... someone who you know shouldn't be friends and yeah, yeah. subvert the smell system by making them smell right. better, could you do that? So, or have you tried that? So, you, you know, so that's a superb question. And you know in science jargon what that means. If a scientist tells you that your question is superb, that means that's just what they're working on now. So, yes, we're doing exactly that right now. We found a way to engineer people's body odor. And so we have now formed groups of people that we've engineered to have body odor X and other groups of people that we've engineered to have body odor Y. And we're seeing if the X's get along together with themselves better than they get along with the Y's. Does it work? I, I don't know yet. We're also doing part of it while conducting functional magnetic resonance imaging or brain imaging. So in other words, we're measuring the brain response while all this is happening, because we also want to identify the mechanism that's underlying all this. But we're doing exactly what you suggested we do, namely 
see if we can engineer social interaction by engineering body odor. Do we sort of do that as a race anyway? Because when I get out the shower, I reach for the deodorant tin or I reach for the aftershave or, or whatever. We all yeah, do it. We all, we all distort our natural smell profile a bit, don't we? I mean, you know, that's, that's a good question that, that actually we haven't yet really systematically addressed. We, we don't know. I'll just say one word on that. There's an interesting set of studies from about 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And what they found is that people actually select perfumes that are in a way a function of their own genetic makeup. So even your selection of perfumes is not a random act. It's something that reflects your body chemistry in some way. Fascinating, isn't it, that we pick our pals based on what they smell like, with or without aftershave or perfume? No, I'm so well there. That study has just come out in Science Advances. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravy, and with Chris Smith. As if anyone needed reminding, for the last two years, the world has been in thrall to the COVID-19 pandemic. And before that, a huge outbreak of Zika virus that was linked to birth defects hit Central and South America and then rapidly spread to other countries around the world. A couple of years before that happened, the world saw the first cases of Ebola outside of Africa and the largest recorded outbreak of the disease within the continent itself. And shortly before that, swine flu swept the globe, hot on the heels of the original SARS virus that came out of China in late 2002 and also spread internationally. Now, outbreaks like these are intensifying both in frequency and in impact. But why? Well, this week we're going to explore the causes and the consequences of emerging viral infections like these. And Jonathan Ball is a virologist at the University of Nottingham And hopefully, Jonathan, you can tell us what actually is an emerging infection. What does that mean? Okay, well, an emerging infection, Chris, is something, an infection that has suddenly appeared within a a population. Or or sometimes we can think of emerging infections as something that has been um, infecting humans for quite some time, but it suddenly gets introduced into a new geographical range, for example. So generally, we think of them as, as new, new uh, kids on the block, as it were. And where do most of them come from? When, when we've got a new entity, it didn't just pop into existence. It must have come from somewhere. So where do most of them appear from? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And so if we think about these, the novel infections, so the unknown infections, for example, things like um, SARS coronavirus, MERS coronavirus, and indeed the recent SARS-2, these are viruses which have been circulating in animals, we think in bats, and they may well find their way into what we call an intermediate species. So this is a, a, a species um, that acts as a kind of gateway into humans. So the virus jumps from the bats potentially into this intermediate species uh, and then into humans. And if the virus is um, able to infect and replicate and then transmit in humans, then that virus can then start to explore humans uh, as a new host. Now, sometimes the virus needs to gain some mutations to be able to do that. But uh, sometimes the virus is pretty much ready to go. And we think that's certainly case, the case for the uh, related SARS viruses. Uh, and so that's one example of a, a virus popping out of an animal host um, into humans. And we can think of HIV as being very similar, also Ebola virus. But if we think about things like um, Zika, for example, what we see there is a virus that has expanded its its uh, range. So it's gone to new geographical locations. And so what's happened is the virus has been circulating for, for, for a very long time in Africa, also in the equatorial uh, ranges within Asia. And then something's happened that has allowed that virus to then transmit 
across the Pacific Ocean uh, and then find its way to Central and, and South American shores. Uh, and so it's, it's these sorts of activities, also things like climate change, etc., that allow the viruses to expand their geographical uh, range and their geographical host. So as the climate, the globe warms, so the, the, the insects that carry many of these infections, infections like chikungunya virus, dengue virus, these are all uh, viruses that uh, rely on insects to spread them. And as the global temperatures warm, the insect ranges increase, and therefore you get the viruses introduced into populations. So it sounds to me really that you're saying there are possibly three things going on. One is that we in some way bring ourselves into contact with where a virus naturally is, or we move the virus to somewhere else, or something else changes which encourages an animal or a thing that has the virus to move. But either way, it ends up with the virus or where it is rubbing up against us and that gives it the chance to jump yeah absolutely uh, and so if you think about uh, human populations have increased significantly also because of that we then need more resources we've started to encroach on wildlife habitats what that does is bring us into close contact with animals that we wouldn't have normally come into contact with and of course not just us but also the animals that we've domesticated and tamed. So, for example, uh, livestock. So it, it's this encroachment upon um, habitats, but also the, the globalization. So the fact that we can travel huge distances and the fact that we ship goods over huge distances has given not only the viruses, but sometimes the insects that the viruses rely on the opportunity to to explore new domains and new realms uh, and new human populations yes i did i did read the headline when the world cup came to south america and they were saying fever pitch because of the worry about people moving en masse by the million to go and watch world cup games but i suppose it's that mass movement that has the potential just very briefly to amplify these sorts of outbreaks it is, you know, wherever you've got people moving over large distances, in you know, very rapidly, then you can see the transfer of infectious diseases um, following those mass migrations. So we live in a different world than we did several decades ago, and that's why we're seeing far more of these emerging infections. So worry, isn't it, Jonathan? Thank you very much. That's Jonathan Ball from the University of Nottingham. In mid-May, alarm bells began to ring among public health practitioners in a number of countries when they noticed a sudden spike in cases of the rare disease monkeypox. Caused by a close relative of the smallpox virus, it's normally found only in a handful of African countries where it's naturally an infection of small mammals like rats and squirrels. In this respect, monkeypox is a misnomer. Monkeys are only an accidental victim like we occasionally are. People who catch the disease, usually after contact with an infected animal, often present with a high fever, swollen glands, muscle aches and weakness and a pustular blistering rash. So why are lots of cases abruptly cropping up among men in Western countries with no travel history to parts of the world where the disease is endemic? What's changed? So far, 2,000 cases have been found across 40 countries and very sadly, one person has died. Michael Head is a global health researcher at the University of Southampton and joins us now. So Michael, what can you tell us about who is getting this infection at the moment? So yeah, this monkeypox outbreak is not like any monkeypox outbreak we've seen before. Usually they've been quite small in number and have been restricted to the parts of sub-Saharan Africa that you mentioned just then, particularly Nigeria and Ghana or sometimes the Democratic Republic of Congo. Here, um, the index case, that first case of this outbreak, will almost certainly have had a travel history with those parts of the world. Uh, we may or may not have detected the index case here. It may be that it went under the radar. Uh, but it's almost certain that they will have come from that part of the world and that they will have brought the monkeypox infection with them. With these cases that have been reported over the last few weeks, they are almost all, if not actually all, linked to these sexual networks amongst men who have sex with men. And the transmission has taken place within those networks. We know that monkeypox spreads predominantly via skin-to-skin -skin contact, or at least very, very close contact. Uh, so it's presumably the case that 
as and when the the rashes and the blisters um, that that we sort of see typically present with monkeypox as they appear on the skin, um, that will be will have been the mode of transmission uh, from one person to another. So far, the wider community has not been impacted. So it's very very different to, for example, COVID, uh, which of course is a respiratory infection where everyone is at risk around an infectious person, essentially, to kind of simplify it. Uh, but with, with monkeypox, you do need that close contact. And within these sexual networks, there has been that close contact enough to transmit it initially and then to sustain transmission across a few countries. So we're seeing these cases of monkeypox increasing, but we've had imported cases in the past before. So why is it now that these cases are taking hold? So there will be a combination of several different factors that are combining here to create an outbreak that appears to be sustaining for at least a little while. One of that is population mixing as a result of um, restrictions being lifted uh, from the pandemic that we've seen over the last two years. Populations are starting to mix in greater numbers. And if you introduce one infection into that community, you then provide opportunities to transmit further, as we have seen within these sexual networks. Specifically with monkeypox, we know that the smallpox vaccine does provide some level of protection against monkeypox. Now, the smallpox vaccine was used routinely in decades previous across the globe, but it's not been used routinely for many years now. So it might well be that we're seeing a reduction in population levels of immunity against smallpox, which is therefore translating into reduced immunity to monkeypox as well. Uh, and if there are, again, encounters between human and animal to create that initial infection, then again, the population mixing might mean further cases beyond the index case. So there's a few factors like that that are combining to create outbreaks like we're seeing here with monkeypox. Now we've been seeing this increased transmission. What is being done to contain it? So a key aspect of this will be the contact tracing by the public health teams to find contacts of cases and people who might be at high risk of infection. And that is a little bit of a tricky job here because we do want to, to, to highlight the problem to those high risk populations who are these gay sexual networks, but also we don't wish to stigmatise them. So it does pose a little bit of a problem for the public health teams and, of course, the, the media and someone who have to report on it. Uh, but we do want people to come forward. And the sexual health teams who are dealing with this are extremely expert at doing so. So actually within this particular population, we have a population that's probably used to being um contacted about possible outbreaks um, and certainly uh, a public health level of expertise that is used to addressing these problems as well. So that contact tracing will be crucial to reduce the number of new cases, uh, to highlight the, uh, the, the, the transmission um, and where the risk areas are and ultimately to slow down the outbreak and eventually bring it to a close. And now that we're seeing these cases here, do we think that monkeypox could become endemic in other countries like the UK? So if it got into these small mammals that normally carry the disease, could it then just become a disease that's in the background here in the UK? That is a concern, yeah. We certainly don't know if that will happen or even if it's likely to happen. Uh, but it's something that uh, the, the public health teams, the global health teams, will need to keep a very close eye on um, to, to see if it does become endemic in our rodent populations, for example, or in any other small animals. Um, it could happen. It may or may not happen. Um, there's a lot we don't know about monkeypox uh, because there's been so few cases, sort of generally speaking, across the world, and certainly so few cases in Europe or North America or other westernised parts of the world. So again, a bit like COVID, this is very much a crash course in learning about an infectious disease as the outbreak happens. So only time will tell on that one. Thank you very much to Michael Head there for an update on the monkeypox situation. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Julia Ravy and Chris Smith. This week we are exploring the field of emerging viral infections. Where do new diseases come from? Of course, we've dwelled very much on human examples so far, but not all emerging infections are human or new kids on the biological block, as we heard from Jonathan earlier. Some are just old diseases in a new form, and flu is quite a good example of that. This is originally an infection of aquatic birds that jumped into humans more recently, and that gave us human flu, but it continues to circulate in its bird hosts as bird flu, from which it then occasionally makes new forays into humans, spawning flu pandemics. And of course, 
the more bird flu cases there therefore are, the greater the risk that this could happen. And in fact, in recent months, many countries have seen massive bird flu activity. And a lot of that is down to what we're doing. Ian Brown monitors this at the Animal and Plant Health Agency. Currently, we're hopefully about to exit the largest ever outbreak the UK has had. And this is a problem that's not just in the UK. It's across Europe, across Central Asia, down into Africa and into North America. So what's happening here is this bird flu strain has been evolving in wild birds. And of course, some of those wild birds move substantial distances on their normal migration, taking the virus with them. And where they take that virus, it will occasionally then spill over into poultry, chickens, turkeys, ducks. And this virus has a very high lethality. And it's happening now because this virus has improved its fitness. So a bit like COVID has done with new variants emerging, it's exactly the same that's happened with bird flu. New variants have subtly emerged over a period of time, and now we've got a particularly fit strain. Given that flu has been around for thousands to millions of years, why are we seeing this intensifying now? Something must have changed which is driving this harder. Yeah, that reflects a number of different systems. In some areas, we rear and produce birds in a different way to what we used to. There's greater connectivity, there's greater density. So that means when a disease enters those birds, it's more easily able to spread. We also produce birds in an environment where connectivity with wild birds is relatively free and easy. So the virus can move between poultry and wild birds in both directions. Then you've got the dimension of climatic factors, urbanisation, Wild birds will go through their annual cycle, which involves, for some species, migrating. And of course, that is a key mechanism for moving this virus. The the parallels, as you highlight, with COVID are quite striking, aren't they? So what you're seeing at the moment is a variant of the virus that's a bit like Omicron. It's, it's evolved to become really easy to spread. But then you've got the human factor that also hands the trump card to the virus because we've got loads and loads of animals all packed together in quite high-density, intensive farming. And then we've got the vector, which is like us on aeroplanes with COVID, going on those wild birds from one hen house to the next. Human behaviour is obviously a critical part, as you say. Once the virus is in poultry, of course, if we don't take steps to limit its spread from one farm to another or one premise to another, then, of course, the virus is very able and efficient at doing that. And in some areas, they do have this problem of stopping lateral spread, as we say, spread between different sites and different farms. What's the risk to humans? Is there one? This virus, in some circumstances, can rarely jump to humans. We had a single case in the UK this winter, uh, which was through very close contact with birds, very mild clinical disease, and was only picked up through active surveillance. In some situations, people can get exposure to a very high dose and they can suffer more severe disease. That is a very rare event. And this virus is a bird virus. It wants to be in a bird. It does not want to be in a human. But as we saw with COVID, one theory is that this being a bat virus, it took people getting up close to bats and putting pressure on the virus, as it were, to jump the species barrier. It got into a person. Once it's into a person, it can humanise. Is there not a risk that it could turn from something which is not very good at infecting humans into something that's much better at infecting humans and then we could get an outbreak in humans of a new kind of flu? Yeah, and that is a risk. And of course, that is the theory for the emergence of pandemic flu. Generally, when the virus is able to cross, it's because there's no hygiene measures being taken by those individuals. They're exposed to the birds and their secretions that are full of virus. So they get exposed to high amounts of virus. The second thing, of course, is managing the infection when they are in birds. It's taking prompt action to to isolate those birds and, and deal with the outbreak effectively. And, of course, that's what we aim to do internationally. So it's about prevention of exposure. It's about monitoring those people. But it's about taking action to control the infection effectively in birds. Now, if that is done, you can mitigate that risk. But where that isn't done, the virus has the opportunity to jump into a human and then maybe successfully make that transmission from one human to another. Climate change is predicted to really shrink the amount of livable land area that we have available to us. 
probably goes for animals too, doesn't it? So are we expecting to see more of this kind of thing in future as more people and more animals converge on less and less resources, water, land, where they can live, and therefore the opportunities for jumps, like with bird flu, but other things, is going to increase? Well, unfortunately, yes, it is a numbers game, isn't it? Um, you know, the more possibility um, for connectivity between these different populations, the more possibility pathogens can jump. Prior to 1997, the particular strain of bird flu we have now causing these international episodes was a very rare pathogen. Now, over the last 25 years, there have been changes in how we rear birds. There have been changes in how we rear poultry and how they connect with wild birds. All of those changes influenced by different drivers, including climate change, where they bring that connectivity closer together, they increase the risk of a virus going from one population that it normally is present in into another new population that it doesn't normally reside in. And that has contributed undoubtedly to the increased scale of the problem with bird flu. And all of that is good for a virus to spread. It's a perfect breeding ground. It's a worry, isn't it? Ian Brown, who is from the Animal and Plant Health Agency. Of course, the most relevant example of an emerging viral infection at the moment is COVID-19, which has cost trillions. This means it's also served as a wake-up call and also a learning opportunity to put in place better safeguards to try to reduce the risks of this happening again. So what shape could these measures take? With us is virologist Vincent Racaniello from Columbia University. Vincent, what are the takeaways from COVID? In my view, there's one main takeaway, and that is we were caught totally unprepared and we need to do better surveillance to know what viruses are out there poised to be the next pandemic. We just can't afford to be surprised like we were uh, with COVID. And COVID itself tells us that we can do this surveillance. We are surveilling humans. We are surveilling sewage. We are surveilling all sorts of animals so we can know exactly when and where the new variants are. We do a great job doing surveillance for influenza virus, as you just heard. We can do that for other viruses, but we barely do it. Uh, the, the polio detection in sewage in the UK, we don't even look in sewers in the U.S. for polio virus. And so, you know, the threat is out there in animals. It's mainly in mammals because the viruses of mammals are, are the ones most likely to infect us. The most numerous mammals are bats and rodents, and our surveillance of them is minimal. We need to know what's out there. First of all, we need to know all the viruses that are in those animals, in bats and in rodents. We need to know where they are. And then we need to do a surveillance program akin to the ones we do for uh, influenza viruses and COVID. And we no need to know what's out there. We need to know at the interface of these animals and people what viruses are circulating, and we have to look in people as well. We have to have some kind of surveillance program where we look at, say, people who are at the interface uh, with bats in the yeah. countryside, people who are at the interface with rodents, and we need to know what, what travel is doing to these viruses. We have nothing of this sort, and that's really the lesson I hope we learn from uh, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, and we're seeing these increased numbers of cases of monkeypox now. So if we were more widely surveying different viruses and different animals, do you think these cases we're seeing now could have been prevented? It depends on how extensive the surveillance is, right? At the moment, our surveillance of monkeypox is really non-existent. We're only looking now because we have cases, but we, we don't even know which rodents are harboring this. There's very little wildlife sampling uh, for monkeypox, and we need to do that. There's no routine sampling at travel uh, locations. So if we could do that, we would have known, oh, look, suddenly there's circulation of monkeypox virus, and maybe we should look out for it before we have the first cases. So the answer is, if it's done properly, then, then yes, we could have uh, anticipated this particular outbreak. And this goes beyond just surveying these different viruses. There's also problems accessing data in different countries. So are there ways that we can solve some of the political problems that also contribute to new viral infections emerging? 
Well, that's the big problem, right? Because uh, the politics supplies the money to do all of this research. And so the data that we generate has to be shared by everyone. And so it would help to have laboratories in many countries generating this data instead of sending samples, say, from Central Africa to, to the UK and the US, make laboratories in those locations immediately put the data on servers so that everyone uh, could access it. Uh, and the money to do this is the problem, right? This is going to cost a lot of money. And inevitably, politicians will say, well, what really is the risk of the next pandemic? And do I have to spend uh, $10 billion a year to find that out? And I don't know how to get around the political issues because I'm a scientist and, and that's all I know. And as a final question, a lot of these infections arise in countries with less resource. So is there a way that we can equip these countries to be better at surveillance? Yes, I, I do think so. And I and the lesson comes from the Ebola uh, outbreak in West Africa in 2015, uh, where many individuals uh, set up the technology locally in order to do viral genome sequences, rather than shipping out the samples elsewhere. They set up laboratories, they taught local individuals how to do the work, uh, and they generated the data and they made the, the local people able to do it. And that's what we need. We need to bring the technology elsewhere. We don't want to parachute in and out. We want to bring the technology to them. So I think it can be done. And that outbreak showed that it could be done. Thank you, Vincent, very much there. Vincent Racaniello from Columbia University. So we've told you this week, and hopefully not alarmed you too much, that basically it all boils down to how many of us there are, where we're building our cities, where we're growing our food, and where we're travelling to, and how quickly. And all of those things are likely to intensify as the population grows and as climate change applies more pressure to us. We need to keep our eyes open, don't we? And now let's end the show in the usual fashion with our question of the week. I set out to address this scanner snag from listener Alistair. The electricals in my car stopped working after it was transported from Cape Town to the UK. I think there was a fault in the scanner in Cape Town. My question is, how do these container scanners or car scanners work? And can it damage the electrical components found within the vehicles? An interesting question. If your car was transported overseas, then it would have been done through a shipping cargo scanner at the port. So how do those scanners work? Here with us is Roger Worrell from the security company Westminster Group PLC, who has a few points to help us understand how these scanners work. The scanners used to scan the contents of cargo containers are X-ray scanners, meaning we can compare them to the scanners used in airports. Your hand baggage is sent through an X-ray baggage scanner which has two X-ray generators, typically 180 kV. Your hand luggage can contain your mobile phone, camera, laptop, iPad, Kindle, all of which go through the scanner unaffected. Your hold luggage goes through a larger size physical X-ray scanner or a CT scanner. Again, there is no effect to electronic devices. X-ray scanners work by sending out X-rays from a generator towards the object inside. These rays are then absorbed at different rates depending on the materials within that object. A detector on the other side then picks up the X-rays that aren't absorbed and displays the image based on the radiation that passed through. Sea freight containers are X-rayed scanned using a 6 MeV or a 7.5 MeV X-ray generator. That's over 33,000 times more volts and the airport luggage scanners mentioned earlier. And yet, in these cargo containers containing electronic devices, should still receive no damage. That's because the increase in power doesn't affect the wavelength of an X-ray. X-rays have a very short wavelength, which is what allows them to travel between molecules. At a port, only the sea freight container is scanned in order to prevent unwanted X-rays affecting the driver. Sea freight containers holds all sorts of equipment, and a large majority of them are electrical goods. So, Alistair, it seems that the scanner may not be the cause of the electrical faults in the cars. We do hope you're able to find the answers for how this happened to your car in the insurance investigation. Next week, we're figuring out this function of fridges from listener Josie.
Why can't I immediately open my fridge door after closing it? It feels like air pressure is keeping it closed. Is this the case? Hopefully we can figure out that fridge fiasco next week. If you've had something pop into your mind recently and thought, I would love to know the answer to that, then get in touch with us at chris at nakedscientist.com. Do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be dipping into ponds, actually, and bringing ponds that were filled in years ago back to life. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education, and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.